Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. The fighting rages on in Central Europe as freedom fighters in Ukraine continue to defend their homeland against the ongoing military invasion launched by Vladimir Putin's Russian forces early this year. Russia's advance stalled and battle lines largely unmoving earlier in the year until just this month when Ukrainian forces opted to take the counteroffensive and begin pushing Russian troops out. President Zelensky touting more than 3,000 square miles retaken. We were lucky enough to gain insight from a former U.N. ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst, on WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show. Uh, Coming up on Thursday of next week at the Bradley Student Center Ballroom, a war in Ukraine, is there a path to peace? This is sponsored by the Peoria Area World Affairs Council. Angela Weck was in here a couple of days ago, and we talked a little bit about that. One of the folks that will be speaking that night, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Mr. John Herbst. Mr. Herbst, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. How are you? We're wonderful. Uh, The problem I have with Ukraine is I, I don't trust any of the news reports I get. Um, because it's bits and pieces. This is a war on many levels, and it's also a propaganda war. Zelensky's got to keep this thing at least looking competitive or show his advantages to keep the West investing. You probably have the best sources, having uh, you know, been ambassador. What, what's the real take on what's going on? Um, it's relatively simple. Uh, Russia is committing a war designed to extinguish Ukraine as a political entity, a war of war crimes, maybe even genocide, according to some scholars. Uh, So the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian leadership understands they are fighting for their very existence. So they have extraordinary motivation to to defend themselves. Uh, On the Russian side, this is Putin's war of, of imperialism. And the Russian people are not really invested in this. So what's happened is, Ukraine, with this extraordinary morale, good leadership, and support from the United States and others in Europe, is, has essentially stopped Putin first from taking Ukraine, taking Kiev and toppling the government. That was back in March. Then they stopped the, the Russian offensive in the east of the country. That happened about by the middle end of July. And now Ukraine has launched a counteroffensive, which has taken back as much territory as Russia has seized since its big invasion of February. So with, with the arms coming from the United States and others in NATO, Ukraine is defending itself well against its much larger country. Is there an out? Because sometimes you have to give a person like Putin an out unless they, in case they, or to prevent them from doing something uh, un- unbelievably horrible. Is there an out for him in this scenario? I think there's an out for him. He can decide tomorrow to to withdraw his troops. He can tell his people he achieved his objectives. He chastened you know, the leadership in Ukraine and then let life return to normal and peace. But, that's not, but the problem is that that's not Putin's objective. Again, there is a, theirs is a war of war crimes. The Russian media and the, and the former Russian president, Medvedev, have said they want to destroy Ukrainians as a political entity and as a people. So when you say we need to give, someone says we need to give Putin some Ukrainian territory, so he saves face. What you're saying is you're going to allow Ukrainians to live under a regime 
which has raped women, abducted children, tortured civilians on an industrial scale. Do you feel, as some, because tactical, tactical nuclear weapons are part of Russia's military strategy, do you think he'll get to that point, or do you think, if it gets desperate, that there'll be opposition inside of Russia to stop Putin, overthrow him, or whatever? Keep in mind that if Russia were to use tactical nuclear weapons, it undoubtedly would also have an impact not just in Ukraine. I'm talking about the, the nuclear radiation, but in Russia itself and elsewhere in Europe. So it's an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary gamble for Putin to use that. If Putin is bound and determined to win in Ukraine despite any cost, he has a much less radical solution. He can officially declare war and mobilize his population so he begins to draft people, not simply see volunteers. But Putin's afraid to take that, take that step because he knows the people of Russia are not keen on this war. This is Putin's war. Whereas the people of Ukraine are all in it because they realize their very existence as mm -hmm. Ukrainians depends upon their victory. Mm -hmm. Is this his legacy then? Is his legacy war, his leg legacy move in his, I mean, I don't know the man and, and you certainly have more insights than, than we do here in Peoria, Illinois, but it looks like to me this is the stamp that he wants to leave on the world. Well, this is an extraordinary mistake on his part. Uh, you know, he claimed that he, he's launched this to prevent Ukraine from becoming a member of NATO, To which, of course, is, is nonsense, and I can explain that if you like. But I didn't want you know, a NATO country on his borders. But what he got as a result of this war of aggression is two long, proud, neutral countries. Finland and Sweden have said they want to join NATO, and NATO said yes. And, of course, Finland shares the border with Russia. So for Putin, even without even putting aside the failure of his uh, aggression in Ukraine, he has greatly strengthened and expanded NATO with this. Yeah, yeah. He has led to uh, Russian isolation, Russian sanctions on the Russian economy, which is going to cost it anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of GDP this year. So it's a huge mistake. And in addition, of course, he's losing the battle, using, losing the war in Ukraine itself. Right. We're about out of time. One last quick question, but it's a touchy one. There is a narrative in the conservative movement that is trying to undermine our support for Ukraine by calling them the most corrupt nation in the world, which, if you have an IQ above five, is a ridiculous statement. Why is this narrative happening? Well, um, you're right. And Ukraine does have a corruption problem, but uh, many other countries are as or more corrupt, including Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is in the uh, Trump wing of the Republican Party a, somehow a sense that this is not our fight. We don't want to get involved. They don't realize that Putin has an active foreign policy designed to undermine American interests and American stability in Europe. If Putin were to succeed in Ukraine, he would launch his next attack on our Baltic NATO allies, who we are obliged to defend with American troops. So it's, it's a vital American interest to defeat Putin in Ukraine by giving Ukraine economic assistance and weapons. The, the folks who don't see this are simply blind 
to the danger Putin poses to the United States. Ambassador Herbst, thank you for your time. We'll see you next week when you attend the Bradley uh, Student Center Ballroom event, which is put on by the Peoria Area World Affairs Council. It is war in Ukraine. Is there a path to peace? If you'd like to have more information or attend, go to pawac.org. Continuing on the topic of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its progress thus far, we also heard from foreign relations and Russia expert at Bradley University, Professor Angela Weck, once again on WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show. Angela Weck is our friend, and we're glad she's our friend because she breaks down things all Russia-related. And, of course, in the world that we live in these days, it is Russia, Ukraine, and that whole mess that we've got going over there. Bradley University, also World Affairs Council. Before we, I, I, we'll get to this in a minute, but you have a couple of things coming up that we will get to uh, and tell people how they can come and learn more about uh, all the, these things in the world that are happening. First of all, good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. Here's my frustration. Uh, there are good journalists and good sources out there, but they're all saying different things. Putin's about to fall. The economy's about to fall. No, he's still selling his oil, discounted, but still making money. 67% of the rest of the world doesn't support the war. They're neutral or have done business with Russia. It's not like the whole world's against them. So are they about to collapse? Was this a turning point for the war? We don't really know. There's too many different sources. And that's exactly spot on. Um, I would say that he is in no risk. Russia is in no risk of collapsing right away. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're going to collapse, period. Remember, Russia is a very rich country. And by that way, I want to clarify for my own purposes. Do you mean Russia the country or Russia's effort in Ukraine collapsing? Russia the country. Okay. So Russia's effort in Ukraine also, though, may not collapse either. So Even though a striking weird week for everybody involved in watching this, right? Well, in fact, the, the plan was for some um, elections to be held, some referenda to be held on Monday that would have recognized the territories that Russia had acquired as part of Russia. And the events over the weekend made that all impossible. And so somewhere, somebody, some person had to go to some group and say, hey, remember that election we were going to have to celebrate the acquisition <laughs> of these? Uh, can we push that back a minute? Because yeah. we lost it all. Yeah. Right. Right. And, Pretty remarkable. But but keep in mind that they've only retreated in the north and east. Right. So they still have significant territorial gains in the south along the Black Sea coast, um, supporting their illegal claims over Crimea from 2014. So... It, it's not done sure, sure, um, sure. by a long shot, but this is significant for Ukraine. It's significant to rebuild the global coalition to help Ukraine and its mor- morale for the Ukrainian soldiers. Do you, we talked about this off air, so it's a little bit of a leading question, but I've had this conscious thought, too. Is Didn't you think that all of this would have been done like a month after it started, that, that Ukraine would just collapse and, and the world would go, well... Uh, we tried to help you, but we we didn't give you enough. And it's, it, the, the rest of us are stunned. I mean, the thing that's happened over the last week, I'm just a common observer, but I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Yeah. And, you know, as we pointed out, the Russia was counting on Putin, was counting on Europe being completely uh, dependent upon Russia for natural gas and oil. And Nord Stream 1 was up and flowing. Germany gets, you know, 35 percent of its national natural gas on Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 was days from going live. 
Um, and so he just assumed that Europe would yeah. fold, would back off and say, you know, sorry, Ukraine, we can't do anything. And then Ukraine would fall because there are enough people who are you know, friendly to Russian. Um, and Zelensky is a comedian turned president. So, you know, of all people that you would assume would turn tail and run, he would have been the one 100%. or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. so that brings us to this winter, the mm-hmm. long play for Putin. Uh, already there are 70,000 to 80,000 demonstrated in Czechoslovakia wanting to loosen the sanctions uh, against Russia and go back to fossil fuels. Germany's starting up coal plants and nuclear plants. Uh, Liz Trust of the UK goes, no, we need fossil fuels. And there's kind of a pushback. People going, we're too reliant. We need fossil fuels. Will it be enough to get through winter? Because I think Putin's counting on it gets so tough that there will be pressure from within to drop some of the sanctions and maybe get to the bargaining table. And and that's a real possibility. Uh, I think he was thinking we would get to that bargaining table sooner. Um, mm-hmm. He was not counting on Nord Stream 2 not going online, and then he was not counting on Europe cutting back on Nord Stream 1. And even when he's done his you know um, prearranged maintenance shutdowns, Europe didn't bat an eye. And so for some countries, however, and it depends on where they're getting their oil and gas from, not all of them are getting it from the same pipeline. And so the Czech Republic, for example, um, Hungary was also exempt from some of those sanctions because it has a pipeline that comes directly to it, basically. And um, so in order for Europe to stand together, they let Hungary slide. The people who are casually on the side of the people with momentum then become a little more aggressive in their support uh, because nobody wants to back a loser. And nobody wants to go, yeah, we love Ukraine. And then Ukraine collapses in a week because we yeah. just don't Which think Which is they're... why this, this push that they won, yeah. this is propaganda for them. Oh, it's no. unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. and, and talk about good PR. This is so good. And then people who were on the fence or just waiting for Zelensky to collapse or re- flee, now we're going to put our arms around him so hard because we want to be associated. I'm talking about humans, not necessarily Americans. Humans want to be associated with a hero. They want to be saddled up next to the hero because that's what he's turning out to be. And now he'll get more help, don't you think? I agree. Yeah. And we also have to keep in mind that the parts of Ukraine that Russia wants the most in the east, Donetsk and Luhansk and the southern border, are rich in resources. Yes. So. Ukraine itself could help supply Europe with the kinds of natural resources they need if Ukraine was free. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if Russia controls it, Russia is still going to control Europe because Europe is this still going to have to work with It's always been about oil and resources. This wasn't against stopping Nazification or all this. And this there are no about, Nazis. Yeah, this was about the resources, right? It, absolutely. In yeah. fact, if you're, if you're going to go with the definition of a Nazi, the Russians are the Nazis. Yeah. Right. They've invaded right. a, a peaceful, sovereign neighbor and for what? To control the, the, the neighborhood. Yeah. So. All right. Can you stick around for a little bit? I can. Because before we go to this break, I do want to tell this. You've got two events coming up, so we'll yeah. do this a couple of times just to remind people. There's one happening on Thursday the 22nd, which is sneaking up on us pretty quick. Uh, this will be uh, featuring a couple of people. I'll let you tell us who they We've are. We've got Ambassador John Herbst, who is a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, coming in person. Nice. And we'll have Ambassador Oksana Makarova, who is the sitting ambassador of Ukraine to the United States, she'll join us by Zoom. By Zoom. And this is the Peoria Area World Affairs Council and the Office of Global Studies and Initiatives. 
If you want more information and to uh, go, go to pawac.org. It is, uh, the presentation's free. There is a dinner. That requires something. Correct. And deadline to order the dinner is tomorrow. Is tomorrow. So get that done. And then you also have voices from Ukraine coming up on the 16th and 17th at the Hartman Center for Performing Arts. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Is that October? No, tomorrow. That's oh, tomorrow. tomorrow. Oh, okay. Thursday, tomorrow. Friday and Saturday. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk more with Angela Weck from Bradley and the World Affairs Council in just a minute, 749 on W. Angela Weck is here from Bradley University and the World Affairs Council. I hope you know how much we appreciate your brain and your nice personality and your willingness to come in with us. Uh, I do want to ask you, uh, before we again remind people about two events you've got coming up, so Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi of China are about to meet again. About I don't know, they met a eight months ago, nine months ago, before the war, right? I think it happened just before they invaded Ukraine. And Putin was all puffed up. And I was like, hey, look what I'm doing, man. And why don't you be on my side? And now it's like, hey, look what we're doing. We're getting our butts kicked. And everything turned around in a week. Everything we gained in six months, we lost in a week. What do you think is going to happen with that? What's China's interest in Russia? Initially, you're right. I mean, she did not necessarily support his invasion because she has not supported um, incursions into sovereign states. He has traditionally said that's that's not correct, that's not acceptable. And so he didn't necessarily support it, but he did agree to stand aside. And then when Russia invaded Ukraine and the political global community started saying, what about China invading Taiwan? Mm-hmm. That turns the attention on Xi that he did not want. Right. So he wants to take over Taiwan peacefully right. by law, by occupation, right, right. not by invasion. And, and he, so he's, he's any literally saying, has, don't look over here. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And now the whole world is saying we had we missed that in Ukraine. And so we have to pay attention now. It's no secret we live with historically challenging political winds blowing all around us. To some, it may feel a bit like a storm. I wanted the chance to get expert local insight on the state of American political discourse, what we might expect to change in the future, and how well equipped we are to navigate these challenging times. For this, I turned to one of Bradley University's top political science professors, Craig Curtis. Where I'm going to start Because we're discussing politics rather broadly in our current moment. We're leading up to, of course, a very important midterm election here coming up. And one of the um, important orders of business that could create quite a lot of politics is uh, the task that Congress has before it now, which is to uh, come up with a way to fund the government before the clock runs out. I think it's October 1st. is this, you know, here we go again, Craig? Uh, what do you expect out of a thing like this? What do you make of it? It's very common practice that the, the Congress fails to meet its obligation to provide a budget for the coming fiscal year by the end of September. Uh, it, this has been going on for more than two decades now. Mm. Uh, it, it's not. It's not different this year. It, it's not harder, or easier because of the particular type of political debate that we're having uh, be- between uh, the president and his predecessor. Uh, this is this is business as usual, unfortunately. I, I wish it weren't that way, but it is. Uh, what are the things you see that, that will probably drive some of the political talking points um, around the decision about that? What are some of the political issues you see that might arise out as this debate continues? Well, most of the members who have to vote on this 
uh, are accountable to uh, their particular constituency. So, it, you know, if you are if you are uh, a member of the Democratic Party from a state that is a pretty strong blue state, um, you're interested in being able to run in the midterms with a record of accomplishment. Um, and, and so you, you want this to get done as quickly as possible, and you want to have uh, a, a record of, of accomplishment for the administration. But at the same time, you need to have local wins. For members of the House, they need to show that they're bringing particular benefits to their district. They need to bring home uh, federal dollars mm-hmm. for projects to their district. They need to be able to go to events where something is, is being started and 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 there's a federal check and they're there when it gets handed out they need to be able to show that they are providing value to the voters and their and their constituency uh and then of course craig the thing i really really was focused on want to start with that but is to drive down on what we're experiencing now with our politics we've had a couple of seemingly unprecedented things happen where you had a search of a former president's private residence it's at something that's never been done. You have uh, the former president calling the Department of Justice nothing but monsters who are backed up by Democrat and media scoundrels. And then you've got President Biden calling a segment of one of the country's major parties extremists and, and you know, kind of walking some of that back. And clear. what I think the question I wanted to allow for you to help us with is what is going on with our politics right now oh this is this is also not new for for um probably a good part of the last decade we have gradually become increasingly uh, divided uh into tribes uh, almost Mm. The, the the hyper partisanship that has become a part of our system is Unfortunate, harmful to the to the body politic, um, but but this is this is not um, just uh, a matter of the last few months. Um, it, it, it's certainly unprecedented for um, for a former president to be involved in in uh, these kinds of uh, situations. If the government's allegations are to be believed um and they've certainly tried to give as much factual information as they can about this um the the former president has uh, violated a number of laws if if indeed he did take documents um that were required to be maintained in a particular manner because of the sensitive nature of the information uh, and, and there's an argument to be made that the rule of law applies equally to everyone and that if a member of anybody's staff had done this, they would be in a lot of trouble. And so the president, former president, should be in a lot of trouble. Well, it's an interesting thought there, the idea, you know, the law should apply <clears throat> to everyone equally. It's, it seems like, why is it, I, I think the question is, why is it that, this becomes so touchy when it comes to politicians, right? Everybody gets real twisted up when there is legal accountability sought for 
say, a politician versus just anybody else. It seems to be unique to politicians that it's a do we or don't we? How far do we go? How how much do we hold back? Why is that? When it comes to a former office holder, you, you don't want to establish a precedent without overwhelming evidence of engaging in prosecution, criminal prosecution, for actions undertaken as part of the uh, of that person's official duties. We, we just don't want to go down that way. This is why police officers get qualified immunity for actions taken in good faith in the course of their duties. This is why prosecuting attorneys are absolutely protected from criminal liability for for the exercise of prosecutorial discretion um, made in good faith. Um, this is why members of the House and Senate are protected under the speech or debate clause um, from uh, consequences of things they say during the course of debate on the floors of the relative chambers. Mm. Um, it, it's not something that we would undertake lightly in the absence of overwhelming evidence of criminality. And I have to think that it it speaks to uh, the idea, and you can I, I suppose you might just say if you concur with this thought, the idea that each each and every one of the folks who who take a position as an elected leader um, is doing the best that they can from within the best of themselves. That's the presumption that we've all agreed about. It seems like up until now. Is that what it seems like to you? Well, the founders certainly assumed that anyone who would seek high office would be a person of good faith. And uh, it, it is, it is unfortunate that, that, we resort to assuming that members of the other tribe are not people of good faith. And I wish the rhetoric didn't include that. Mm. Um, at the same time, I think there are colorable arguments to be made that some of the actions being taken are inconsistent with broad principles of democratic governance. Mm. And, and and so when that when there's a colorable argument that a stance taken by a political party is at odds with a founding principle, I think it's incumbent upon the opposition party to say, hey, by the way, this is not consistent with uh, America, the American form of democracy. How and, is yeah? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I right, so. Again, this depends upon the set of facts that you assume, and that's what's really sad because each of the two, uh, each of the divisions that we broadly think about as, as separating us, have disparate set of facts that they accept as true. Okay. Yeah. So um, supporters of the former president very frequently uh, would say that um, searching a former president's residence was was an overreach. Um, and not consistent with the the norms of democratic governance. Mm -hmm. Why is it so tricky seeking judicial or criminal accountability when it comes to politicians? Referring to the case of the unprecedented Mar-a-Lago FBI raid on former President Trump and all of the rhetorical points surrounding the subject matter and our broader political discourse today, we continue our conversation with top Bradley University political science professor Craig Curtis. 
And Craig, plenty of folks would say the FBI raid itself was outside the norms of democratic government. And and the response to that is, um, under normal circumstances, that would be true. There are allegations, factual allegations being made of, of uh, unprecedentedly violative behavior. Sure. That, if true, would potentially justify uh, the actions of of the FBI. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, members of the the president's side look at what's going on with regard to to uh, laws that restrict the ability of citizens to vote, and they can justifiably say, "We're not doing this. Only the Republican Party is doing this." And they can make a legitimate argument that this is potentially violative of a fundamental principle of democracy, which is universal suffrage. Mm. And you know, it's 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 the way that the First Amendment, uh, you know, marketplace of ideas is supposed to work is that each side gets to say what they what they want, and people decide what they believe, and then they make their choices at the ballot box. But that depends upon access to the ballot box being equally available to both sides. Uh, there was one thing I was going to allow you to speak to, which is um, it, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, I think, with the whole idea of a tribal nature to politics in this country right now. But I, I would kind of add on to that a thought and a question about how it, it seems as though what is what happens so often now within the discourse is you have one side saying there's this, and then the other side is saying, okay, well, what about this? Let's say with a specific example with regards to this whole issue with Trump and the things in Mar-a-Lago and whatever. You have the feds, they go down, they do what they did. You have the folks uh, the folks at the Department of Justice, you know, with their fist on the table, you know, we're doing our job. And then you have the other side that ends up going, well, what about... Hillary and all of that. So it turns into this, well, what about, what's ha- why is that happening and what is that? It seems like the whataboutism is, is running rampant in our politics right now. It is, and I wish it wouldn't. I, I think it's very harmful to national discourse. Um, if you want to have a debate about what Hillary Clinton did or didn't do, um, that's, I think, acceptable, but it doesn't say anything about whether any of the things that are being alleged that Donald Trump did are true or not true factually. It's a form of, def- of, of argument, of rhetorical argument, that deflects attention away from what is factually true. Mm-hmm. And I don't like it when either party engages in it because it deflects people's attention away from what they should be attending to, which is what is factually true. What does the law say? What did people do? Has the law been violated? And then I think um, I've got two more questions, and one is, I think, an offer, an offer for you, or an opportunity for you to offer us perhaps a little bit of encouragement about what it is that we're seeing happen. And I think it's a question that's deep in everybody's mind: is that um, is are we is our system? Did the founding fathers see this? Is our system set up to process this? and get us through it, uh, what do you have to say about that question? Well, the optimistic point of view is that the system was kind of set up for this, and it's it has survived 
situations in the past where the threat of civil war was was far greater. Um, mm-hmm. There were legitimate fears that the election of 1800 would result in civil war. The, the election was nasty. Mm-hmm. The name-calling was nasty, even by today's standards then. And, and we got past that. Um, we certainly didn't manage to avoid a civil war over, over slavery in, in 1861, but we got past that. There have been a number of situations where there have been um, severe strains on the nation's social and political fabric, um, and we've gotten past it. And, and, and some people would say, well, well look, look what's happened. Um, the courts held the line against conspiracy theories about the election. Mm. They've demanded actual physical proof of election fraud, and no one's been able to deliver that. We have the hearing process um, with the, the January 6th commission. Mm-hmm. Whether you think some of the things are true or not, there's been an awful lot of disclosure. And You, in your analysis, uh, and using your knowledge base, might estimate that this thing plays out. That's a big one. Uh, but what are your expectations as we as we continue to live through this political moment? That's an extremely difficult one, and I think there's a very high likelihood that whatever prediction I make will be wrong. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Say, saying that, uh, one scenario that I regard as perhaps most likely is that um, is that is that uh, one there will be no criminal prosecutions of Donald Trump. Mm. There will be potentially legal sanction taken against his attorneys um, by the court. They could be held in contempt for misleading the court. Um, it, it, it could happen that one or more of his staffers um, are, are uh, held to account, but I don't think he will be. Um, I, I don't know how the 2022 election will work out, but if a number of the um, if a number of the candidates that have been strongly endorsed by Trump fail in the general election, and if the Democrats retain control of the Senate, and even if they, and this is more unlikely, retain control of the House, mm-hmm. that's a pretty strong public rebuke uh, to the president and places the former president and places him in a very weakened position trying to secure the nomination for 2024. Um, Even so, if he he attempts to secure that nomination, he's almost certainly going to get it because he controls the the base of the party pretty well. Mm -hmm. He he cannot, under any circumstances, win um, um, the popular vote in 2024. Yeah. And the the ability for him to win enough uh, of pluralities in a few close states to get the electoral college is, I think, um, increasingly hard to do um, as his own personal failings are a little more um, prominent uh, as a result of the investigations by the FBI and by the January 6th commission. You know what? I I did have one um, uh, uh, last one, which was uh, tied to a curiosity specifically about how, uh, I suppose you might say, the dynamic exists between someone like Trump who's been a flag bearer and a leader 
and a de facto head of the Republican Party, even while he's been out of office, even while he's been kind of in the background. Okay, in that scenario where you say the Democrats uh, find a way to kind of come out on top in a lot of key races and maybe come out on top overall in November, you know, what is the dynamic, at least that you see right now? Is there a conversation that happens between somebody in the Republican Party and Trump that says, hey, enough? You know, does that moment happen uh, in in your estimation? Um, oh, oh no, oh no. no! Donald Trump doesn't listen to anybody. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. He he does what he wants to do, um, and and so the only the only the only thing that would really get in the way of him making uh, a a push for denomination in twenty twenty four, if he personally chooses to do it, um, is some failing of his physical health, which I would never wish on anyone, sure. uh, or if, if the, in the highly unlikely event that some of his legal troubles result in a criminal conviction and a, a court rules him incapable under the 14th Amendment, under Article 3, of holding federal office. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Cooper Banks, WNBD News.